Our text this morning, as we hear from the living God in his word, is Hebrews 6, verses 9 to 12. And if you would keep your Bible there and open so you can follow, we are returning now to our ongoing study of Hebrews after two Sundays away. But for those of you who have been with us, how could we forget where we left off the last time we were together in verses 4 to 8 of this chapter. Let me do now a rapid review to reset the context as we come into our text. Having arrived in Hebrews at the central message of this written sermon in chapter 4, verse 14, where the pastor says, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Having arrived at that central message that will occupy the large central section of this book, and then having begun to expound its meaning in chapter 5, verses 1 to 10, the pastor then stopped in chapter 5, verse 11, if you recall. About this, we have much to say, he asserted. Only he can't say it yet, because it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. The pastor is concerned that despite his best efforts to explain the significance of Christ's high priestly ministry, they wouldn't hear it. That despite his best efforts to convey the critical teaching they needed to hold fast their confession, Nothing would change. And so, the pastor knows he has to jolt them. He has to awaken them from complacency and direct them to the path of persevering faith. He will bring them back to his main topic of Christ as high priest. If you glance down at the beginning of chapter 7, you see we're not far from it. He will bring them back to it. But only after securing their renewed determination to comprehend its significance, to appropriate its benefits as the means of their perseverance. In other words, in this, in this somewhat parenthetical section of Hebrews, the pastor has a careful method. And we've been tracking it. Two sermons ago, in chapter 5, verse 11, up to chapter 6, verse 3, we saw the pastor shame his hearers, didn't we? He said they're like grown men and women who suck milk from the bottle, essentially. Remember that? You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. Because, as we saw, they had regressed spiritually, and the situation now was a dangerous one. So, having shamed his hearers, the pastor then went on to warn them in verses 4 to 8 of chapter 6 from the last sermon. For it is impossible, he writes in verse 4, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age to come and then have fallen away. It is impossible to restore them again to repentance. The pastor cannot 
have put it any more strongly, the spiritual sluggishness, the dullness, the infancy of his hearers is not a neutral state. If not arrested, their regression will continue. It could result in irrevocable loss. For if we go on sinning deliberately, pastor later warns in Hebrews 10, verses 26 and following, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. For, as the pastor concluded last time in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 6, if you want to look there, for the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. So what then are they to do? Is it too late? Is it the pastor's method now to simply leave them with their ears blistered from this curse and burning? Will he now offer them no further thoughts regarding their spiritual state and its eternal end? This is where we find ourselves in the text of Hebrews chapter 6, verses 9 to 12 this morning. And what we see, of course, is that the answer is no. No, it isn't too late. No, the pastor isn't going to leave them alone after shaming them and then warning them. Quite the opposite. We can only imagine the relief, I think, that these men and women in this first century house church likely would have felt when after these words from the pastor of shame and then of warning come words of comfort. Though we speak in this way, the pastor says at the beginning of verse 9, referring, I think, to the strong warning he just gave them in verses 4 to 8, Yet, in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. No, the recipients of Hebrews were not yet to be identified with the apostates the pastor just described. In fact, the pastor says he feels sure of better things. The verb that's translated, we feel sure, means to be confident, to be certain. And while it can be a word that's used to express a mere opinion, that's not usually the sense of it, even in other uses in the New Testament. Most often the verb communicates a strong, even absolute conviction. The pastor isn't in doubt. His hearers aren't those who have fallen away. And he seems confident his warning will have its desired effect, such that they will not be those who will fall away either. So he comforts them. Not with a vague sense of hopefulness, but with a sure, certain conviction. 
It is, therefore, the nature of that comfort that I want to focus on in our study this morning of verses 9 to 12. I propose we do this by considering just these four verses in two parts. First, in verses 9 and 10, for us to look at the cause of the pastor's comfort for his hearers. He follows his strong warning with sincere comfort. On what basis can he do that? That's the first and the very much, much, much longer part of this sermon this morning. And then secondly, in the rapid few minutes that will be left to us, in verses 11 and 12, we'll just glance at what the pastor then says about the continuation of that comfort for his hearers. Because he doesn't want the comfort that he pronounces concerning them to end, he wants it to continue. So we'll consider briefly how that can happen. How the comfort he brings them can be an ongoing reality in their lives and in ours. So we have the cause of the comfort and the continuation of the comfort. And we begin and spend most of our time now in verses 9 and 10 considering the cause of the pastor's comfort. How can the pastor say in verse 9, Beloved, it's the only time he calls them beloved. Beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. How can he be sure? And since I want us to be applying all of this to our own lives too, we can ask a related question in the background. I hope you'll be asking it. Would the pastor say this about us? About Christ the King. Not a house church exactly, but a tea shop church, so it's close. On what basis can we be properly comforted with respect to the warning that we studied last time in verses 4 to 8? Or, if I may put it another way, in order to bring us once more back into the thought flow here again, on what grounds can we be properly comforted concerning whether we're to find ourselves in the example of verse 7 or in the example of verse 8? Would you look at those two verses one more time with me? This is the immediate context as we move now into verse 9. Verse 7 was again the land that has drunk the rain that falls on it and what happens? It produces a crop useful for those for whose sake it is cultivated, and the end result is, the end of verse 7, it receives blessing from God. On the contrary, the land that has drunk the rain that falls on it in verse 8 does not do that, but instead bears thorns and thistles. And its end, the text says, is to be burned. But then, as we come into verse 9, I think it's easy to miss the precise point the pastor's making. Because in the ESV, as in, I think, almost all English translations, so the weight of it is, is in favor of them, but I'm arguing here, verse 9 in the ESV says, the pastor feels sure of better things. Only that's just a tad bit fuzzy, because the Greek has the better things. It's referring to the better things. Yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of the better things. Now that word the 
<laughs> isn't there in that English translation, which I think is unfortunate because I think it matters. I think there's a specific referent in view when the pastor talks here about better things. To what is he referring? What are the things? I think the answer is that the better things are a reference to the useful crop that receives God's blessing back in verse 7. That there are two kinds of things in verses 7 and 8. The land either produces a useful crop or it produces thorns and thistles. So that what the pastor's doing, I think, is providing comfort to the recipients of Hebrews, hear this, based on his observations regarding what their lives are producing. Right? Which category of things describes them? There are two options, and what he says is, Beloved, in your case, I'm certain of the better things. But just in case we miss it, the pastor clarifies what he means by saying he's talking about the things that belong to salvation. Now, once again, I think that's a reference still back to verse 7. He's convinced his readers fit that description, that they're the land that indeed does produce a crop, useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, and that as a result, theirs will be blessing in the end. Only now he makes the nature of that blessing explicit, doesn't he? It's salvation, which is not surprising since it has to be the opposite of the end to which the land comes in verse 8. Its end is to be burned. The blessing of verse 7 is salvation. We already intuitively understood that, I think. But let me remind you how well this fits with what we've seen all along in Hebrews. How we've been talking about salvation as something that's strongly, fundamentally oriented to the future. Right? We've said there are aspects of salvation we experience now. We boldly approach the throne of grace now, to be sure. But ultimately, the salvation in view describes something in the future. It's life with God in a place. As I've been saying a whole lot, just about every week, in this sermon series. It's what was ultimately in view. From when he began talking about the great salvation in chapter 2, to the, the ultimate thing in view with the example of the wilderness generation in chapters 3 and 4, made explicit in chapter 4, verse 1, when the pastor says there in 4, verse 1, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. That's what's in view here. And so, the comfort the pastor gives his hearers is profound. He sees the better things in their lives, the things that belong to that blessed future. Yes, they've regressed spiritually. Yes, they need the warning of verses 4 to 8 that their regression may be reversed. But the whole point is that they're not lost yet. And the pastor knows that because he looks at their lives and he sees the better things, things that belong to salvation. Okay, but then he spells it out in verse 10. 
Verse 10 provides then the explicit cause for the comfort he's just given his hearers in verse 9. You see how verse 10 begins with the word for? This is now the reason. This is the ground for the certainty the pastor just expressed. Look at it as we read it. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. Marvelous. That whole verse is the cause for the comfort the pastor gives his hearers. And just about every little piece of it matters. So let's look at it closely and this will be fun. To begin with, verse 10, I think we're, we're quite likely to, to misread the tone of it. I think there's almost a, there's a, there's a joyfulness to the way verse 10 begins. I don't know that we sense that. The pastor here employs a literary device. I didn't know what this was before this week, but I'm fascinated by it now. A literary device called Lydides. Now, any English majors in the room who know what Lydides means? Okay, if you are an English major and you don't know what it means, don't tell me. It's okay. Lydides. Lydides, it's hard to spell. It's spelled L-I-T-O-T-E. S looks like litotes, right? But it's not. It's pronounced litities. Litities is when you make an ironic understatement, but the way you do it is by using the negative to express the strong affirmative of the contrary. We do it in English. For example, in English when we say, you won't be sorry. What we mean is, you'll be really glad, right? That's an example of lydides, or closer to the form that we find here. If I say, Albert Einstein wasn't a bad scientist, right? Or, or I don't know, Wayne Gretzky isn't a bad hockey player. I mean, maybe he's not so good now, I don't know, but <laughs> you get the point. If we say that, what we mean is, Albert Einstein was an astonishingly good scientist. Or Wayne Gretzky is the great one, right? I mean, that's Lydides. It's a device that's employed for rhetorical exaggeration or emphasis, and that's what the pastor's doing here. When he says, God is not unjust. I mean, he almost has a... I just, there's something radiant about God is not unjust. That's him communicating the strongest possible affirmative of the contrary point. What he means is God's justice, God's righteousness, because that's the same Greek word. I'll even say God's faithfulness, because that's how God's righteousness is very often unpacked in terms of what it means in the Bible. That's all completely beyond question, dear recipients of Hebrews. Now, you see, the point has to be here that that's astoundingly good news to them. The comfort he gives his hearers in verse 9 is grounded first and foremost in the faithfulness, the justice, the righteousness of God. But how? 
what is it the pastor is referring to here? What will God's righteousness mean for the recipients of Hebrews according to the pastor? What is God's just or righteous or faithful to do for them? Well, that's the rest of the verse. For God, who's so unquestionably righteous and faithful, he won't overlook. Or, if I can switch the negative and put it as the pastor does, God is not unjust so as to overlook your work. And the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. In other words, he won't forget it. He won't forget it. The word that's translated overlook here is often rendered forget elsewhere in the Bible. He won't forget it. He won't forget the work and the love of, your, of the hearers of Hebrews manifested in their past and now in their current ministry to fellow believers. Ooh, that's what it says. And I, I'm just going to guess that we struggle with that a little. I'm guessing, though I don't know for sure in every case, but maybe for some of you, something about that sounds almost wrong. It shouldn't, but it does. <laughs> we struggle to make sense of a verse like this. Why? Well, maybe many reasons, but here's a theory. It's big picture stuff, but in the Christian church, in, especially in the Christian Protestant church, ever since the Reformation in the 16th century, we've been taught quite rightly that nothing we can do earns God's favor. We all know that. God loves us because he loves us, not because we managed to do a few things to impress him or to notch up a few points on some heavenly scorecard. That's absolutely true. No one's trying to deny it, least of all the pastor writing Hebrews. The problem, I think, is that that truth has been so strongly impressed upon us that we tend to think we see that teaching everywhere in the Bible. So that we see the word work there in verse 10, and what immediately runs through our mind? We think, oh, something they're trying to do to earn God's favor, right? We see work, and we, just, we, we sometimes tend to think trying to earn our way to salvation. Works righteousness, so that it, it, it sounds to us like the pastor's saying something wrong here. But he's not. He's not. And the first clue that he's not is the light at ease that we just talked about. God's righteousness is joyfully celebrated in verse 10. His faithfulness, rather than explicitly just their work, you'll note very carefully, his faithfulness is the ultimate ground of their comfort. How does this work? Well, I'm going to omit and, and in fact condense quite a lot in what I'm about to say here because otherwise we'd be uh, here till dinner. Here's my short answer. I think this works because what the pastor's saying is that what he's seen in the lives of his hearers in both the past and the present is enough for him at the present moment to know they're the real deal. 
And they're still the real deal, if I could put it that way. We said this last time, they've been enlightened. They've tasted the heavenly gift. They've shared in the Holy Spirit. They've tasted the powers of the age to come. How does he know it? Their current dangerous spiritual regression, notwithstanding, all isn't yet lost. Why not? Because thanks be to God, the fundamental reality of God's work in their lives is on display. It's still on display, in fact. The better things that belong to salvation can be seen in their lives, you see. So that the pastor's sure confidence, given the past, given the present, and as we'll see briefly at the end, how the pastor assumes the ongoing faithfulness of his hearers, his confidence is that on this basis, God will bless them. Because God is just and righteous and faithful, and the righteous and faithful and just God will not overlook their work and the love they have shown. Theirs will be the entrance into salvation. Why? Because they did enough to impress God and just managed to tip those scales just a little bit in their favor? No. <laughs> See, this is the kind of thinking that we just we import to verses like this. No. It's because the pastor is sure that based on what he sees now to be the case, and assuming, as he will do, the continuance of such persevering faith in their lives, the pastor is confident that in the end God will look on them and say on the basis of what he sees... You are my children. You are in relationship with me. I know you. My son died for your sins. My spirit has indwelt you. Your life has produced a useful crop. Well done, good and faithful servant. Christian, God is not unjust. Final judgment will not be poured out on those who live righteously. But now look at, because <laughs> I know I'm leaving buckets of questions behind me. How can the pastor be so sure of that? What is it he's seeing in them? Exactly. Precisely. You see, he says it. What is the number one thing that reveals that God is at work in one's life? What is it? Now think carefully about that. Because, of course, there are many things that can reveal God at work in our lives. The pastor says in verse 10, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work. I mean, that's a general statement. That surely encompasses the full scope of their faithful conduct, past and present. When someone's a Christian, there's lots of fruit, right? But I'm going for the heart of it, because I want the sure thing. I'm going for the heart of it, because I think that's what the pastor's doing too. What's the thing above all other things that reveals God has come into your life, Christian? 
such that when the pastor writing Hebrews sees it in the lives of these people, even though they're currently in spiritual regression, such that he has to strongly warn them not to continue down that path. Even then, what comfort, what is it that says to the pastor, they're not lost yet. In the end, they will be saved based on what I see now as that continues to be a reality in their life. What is it that allows him to give them such confident comfort? You know what it is? It's love, brothers and sisters. Above all, what the pastor sees is their love. Now we just read right by that. But no, upon seeing it, seeing it both in the past and in the present, as the end of verse 10 makes very clear, it's present reality, he says to them, to them that he just warned, he says, God is totally faithful. Boy, your lives aren't perfect. In fact, you've become dull of hearing. You're in danger of falling away. Things don't change course. But oh, beloved, know this. God doesn't forget your righteous and loving action undertaking for others. And I see that. Now, of course God doesn't forget that because that's the very thing his spirit is bringing about in our lives, right? Does it, do any of you remember Galatians 5? Most of you in this room weren't here when we went through Galatians. Listen to Galatians 5, verses 5 and 6 again. See, we, we, need, we, we need to sense just the, just the current, the depth to which that's flowing from the scriptures on this point. Galatians 5, verses 5 and 6, Paul says, For through the Spirit, by faith we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Oh, there we are. Blessing, salvation. For, why? How do we do that? For, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only, what's the only thing that counts? Do you remember this? The only thing that counts, it's faith working through love. And now look carefully in our verse 10 of Hebrews 6. Whom exactly are the recipients of Hebrews loving here? Do you see this? There's two answers to that. Of course, there's two answers to that. There's always two answers to that. The first answer is that they've shown, they've demonstrated, note that, this is action stuff. This is, re, this is practical action. They've shown it. They've shown love for God's name. See that? means they've shown love for who God is. To love God's name entails love for who he is, his glory, his reputation. The pastor sees that God's name, God's glory, drives their activity because they love who God is. And friends, when that's the case, when you truly love God, what happens? You love others. We're at the bedrock of the Bible here, okay? Verse 10, it's the love that you have shown for his name in 
by means of, meaning this is how your love for God manifests itself in your life. It's in serving, ministering to the saints. It's practical stuff. It's the verb diakoneo, where we get service, ministry from. Now, we don't know all that the pastor was seeing here. We do know some of what he's referring to. He talks about some of it later in Hebrews 10, verses 32 to 34. We won't read it or turn there right now, but he reflects on what they'd done in the past. I'll just make the note that that included how they unselfishly committed themselves to helping their suffering brothers and sisters. The bottom line is the pastor's confidence in his hearer's salvation is anchored to their service to the saints. A service that endured, began in the past, it continues until the day he writes the sermon. Their lifestyle in this house church in Rome or wherever it was, was actually living out Christ's new commandment to love one another with a sacrificial love with which Christ had loved them. Or in other words, from everything the pastor has seen, he confidently can say, yeah, they're the real deal. Right? Even struggling though they presently are in lots of ways. And so, yes, the pastor shamed them. Yes, the pastor warned them. But then, the pastor comforts them. Here's the real question Would the pastor say this about us? Christ the King. What did he say? I know you're not perfect. I know you're struggling in this and that. And, but take deep comfort, beloved. Because God is not unjust. He will not overlook your work. And the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do is that Christ the King. Boy, that's the question I've been asking myself this week. What really matters in how you live your life, Christian? I mean, what really matters? What really matters in the life of our church? Jesus says, John 13, verse 35, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Do we? Oh, I want to encourage you, I have seen love for one another in this congregation. You ought to encourage one another when you see it. But I ask the question still from the big perspective, would the pastor be able to see it? Because it has to be shown, you see, it has to be visible. We ask for this every week. Matthew 22, verses 37 to 40, Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. Jesus can count. They asked him for one commandment. He knows what he's saying. It's the same thing. The second is just like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
on those two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And what do we say every week? Lord, write your law on our hearts, we pray. Here's my question. What should we expect to see when he does that? And what does it mean if we don't see that? That's the bottom line question. Because the need all through Hebrews and all through the Bible is for faith that takes the shape of the righteousness of the new covenant with God's laws inscribed on our hearts. We're getting there in Hebrews. This is not some random verse from the pastor. Take Paul, Romans chapter 13, verses 8 to 10. The one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not commit murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covenant, and any other commandment, think about that, are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Take John, 1 John chapter 3, verses 10 and following, 1 John 3, verses 10 and following, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. You see what the pastor is saying? James 2, verses 14 to 18. What good is it? If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? And then what's James's first example? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So, that, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Now show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Or, leave all those aside, just take Jesus. Matthew 25, verses 31 and following. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom. Salvation, blessing. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Why? For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me.
God is not unjust. So as to overlook your work and the love you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. Dear friends, it is the constant teaching of the New Testament that where faith does not exist in publicly manifested form, it does not exist in some hidden and private form. The cause of the comfort the pastor gives to his hearers in Hebrews 6 is their work. And the love they have shown because it is that which God who is abundantly faithful is generating in them and will never overlook. Your obedience is never trivial. And it is never forgettable. How you live your life matters. God knows whether we truly love his name. Such love is shown in service for the saints. God is not unjust. And there we are, and we haven't even touched on verses 11 and 12, but you know what's then required, don't you? If the pastor's seen this in the past, the pastor's seeing it in the present, what's he going to challenge them to do? What will be the source of their continuing comfort? Well, it's the same as it always is in Hebrews. It will be as they persevere, as they endure in showing this continued fruitfulness in faith obedience, right? Being sure of the better things in verse 9 for the reason he gave in verse 10. Then the pastor looks ahead now in verse 11. And we desire, he says, oh, that's a wonderful verb. It means he longs for, he passionately wants. I mean, this is what any pastor worth his or her salt passionately wants. We desire each one of you to show, and it's the same, you see the word show, it's the same verb that's used just a verse above where they showed the love, right? They showed love for God's name, same word. To show the same earnestness. To have the full assurance of hope until the end. And I think to rightly interpret it, you could insert the words in English, in order to have. To show that same earnestness in order to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Notice how the verb show, as I said, is the same. Notice how in verse 11, what the pastor desires is the same, that every one of them would show the same earnestness, meaning he wants every one of them to display the same thing he just described in verse 10, the diligence, the zeal, the obedience, but the love for God in loving others. That's what I want all the way to the end, because that's how the comfort the pastor gives them, the certain comfort he gives them in verse 9 will continue. You see, such earnestness, such diligence leads to a hope characterized by assurance. What the pastor calls for is perseverance by which the hearers will remain engaged in the work and the love of God, thus possessing a confident hope until the end of their earthly journeys. That's how I read this text. Assurance of faith is obtained through the activity of believers. Why? Because you're making sure you're right with God by what you do? Because God's at work in you. And it's showing up. It's in your activity. 
Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work within you. The pastor wants the diligence that characterized their lives at the beginning to continue so that they will be full of hope until the final day. So that as verse 12 says, you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience, endurance, perseverance, steadfastness, inherit the promises. Just like Abraham, to whom our attention turns next week in verses 13 to 20. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.